Well, we're going to read the Bible together. We're going to read from Acts chapter 24. We've been working our way through this story of Acts, the later part of the story where Paul is on his way ultimately to Rome. He has been brought before the Sanhedrin. He has now been imprisoned in Herod's palace, and he's going to, we're finding, uh, he's going to appear before Felix. So that's what we're going to read about in Acts chapter 24. And as we read, we remember this is God's Word. If you've got a pew Bible, it's page 1121, page 1121. We'll read the whole chapter. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. And they brought their charges against Paul uh, before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before uh, Paul, before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of Several years I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts to the, for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin, unless it was the one thing I shouted as they stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewess. He sent for Paul and listened to him, and he spoke about faith in Christ, as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. 
When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, uh, who, who, because Felix wanted to grant the favor to the Jews, uh, left Paul in prison. Amen. We trust that God will bless to us this reading from his word, John. Amen. Well, do open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 24 this morning. Acts 24, as we make our way through this passage, it'll be helpful if you have your Bible open uh, along with me. Now, you can imagine the scene. Uh, The teenager lies in their bed. It's about 11 a.m. in the morning, and their mom or their dad comes in, and it's like the Spanish Inquisition. They bush through the door. What's this? What sort of time is this? Why are you not up? What's going on? What's this on the floor? Your hoodies are lying here and your socks are still here. And why have you got 10 cups of tea lying about the place? And then they go over to the, over to the window and they pull back the blinds. And with the light, the teenager kind of sits there dazzled. What is going on? What are you doing in my room? What time of day is it? What time of the night is it? Uh, and then as the light floods in, they're able to see so much other things that are lying around the room. There's, there's a, a week's old lasagna plate that's been lying there. There's mold growing over in the corner, and there's something maybe moving that seems to be alive. And the teenager thinks, what is happening? The the parent comes into the room, and what does the parent do? The parent unsettles, and the parent judges. What is this mess that you have made? And then they say a line, something that goes a little bit like this, there are going to be changes around here. There are going to be changes around here. I don't think anything ever really does change, but they promise that changes will happen. There'll be a change, and they'll not be allowed to do or live in this state any longer. The parent judges, the parent unsettles, the parent unsettles, and then they judge. And we don't like it. The light exposes us, it brings us into the light, it shows our filthy way of living. And just this morning, as we come to Acts 24, that is exactly what the gospel does. The gospel comes into the room of our lives. It bursts open the door. It it pulls back the, the blinds, pulls back the curtains. And as the light floods in, what happens? It unsettles us, and it judges us. And we do not like the good news of the gospel. As, as natural human beings, we detest the gospel. It exposes us for who we are. And so in our society, we detest being judged, don't we? You can't judge me. You can't tell me what way I can live my life outside of the gospel, just in general day-to-day life. What right have you to say this to me? And so we detest being judged And if there was something that came into second place, it would be disturbing our comfortableness. We love our comfort. We don't like to be disturbed. We don't like to be unsettled. We don't like to be judged. We don't like to be unsettled. And the gospel does exactly that. It unsettles us. And this is uh, the implication that living for Jesus will have for each of us. Because if we live for Jesus, then we're not living for ourselves. And that disturbs us. It unsettles us, which, of course, it's a, it's a twist, isn't it? To say that we're living for Jesus sounds like we're having to, to give up so much of ourselves, which we are, but actually what we walk into is true living, living in its purest form as we live for Jesus, the way that we have been made to live. 
But being a disciple of Jesus means things are going to change. We'll have new priorities. We'll worship every Sunday together. We'll have new ways of thinking. We'll think of others instead of ourselves. We'll have new budgets, how we spend our money and our time and and the things that we do. We'll use new words and we'll speak differently. And as we come into gospel living, it's a change that, that should help us flourish as human beings. It's the way that we've been made to live. But the gospel, it unsettles, it ruffles, it changes how we see the world, and people hate it, they detest it. And what do they try to do? Well, the world tries to stop the gospel, doesn't it? It tries to, to stop us from promoting this good news. It doesn't like the message, so it wants to button it down. And so the world tries to, to make it illegal to preach the Bible. Or the world will try and twist the Bible. It'll try and neutralize the potency of the gospel. It happens at a national level. We see that as laws are trying to be changed. We see it at a local level, even here in Northern Ireland, where we are having more restrictions placed upon us. Things that used to happen maybe don't happen as much now. And then it happens at an individual level where we try to to push the gospel away. Here's what we really try to do. We keep the gospel at arm's length, and so we try to neutralize it, we try to sanitize it, and we try to modernize it. We try to neutralize it and sanitize it and modernize it, and it's all part of this agenda, the agenda that's going on in Acts 24, just below the surface. Stop the gospel. And this is just as an aside before we step into the text. It happens within the church. The same agenda is part of the very church herself. Story after story of churches editing parts of Scripture, parts that would seek to unsettle and seek to judge, can be most vicious and most wicked whenever it begins within the church. And so Acts 24, it is with the Jews this begins, isn't it? In Acts 23, we thought about it, how Paul's brought before the religious council, and so it is in Acts 24. How does it start? It starts with the religious Jews bringing him before the authorities. It starts, as it were, within those who are in the church or should be part of the church, and yet they despise the gospel. Why? Because it unsettles, it ruffles, it brings change, it doesn't fit with their traditions, it exposes their hearts. And so what we're going to see in Acts 24 is Paul before Felix, and then Felix before Paul. First of all, Paul before Felix, and it's really the gospel in the dock. And what we see is that the gospel unsettles. This is from verses 1 through to 21. So the gospel's in the dock, the gospel unsettles, it's Paul before Felix. The Jewish leaders, what's happening? They're up in arms, aren't they, from Acts 23, about what? About the resurrection. It causes a, an absolute uh, riot between the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees in Acts 23. And they're so bitter against the gospel, so bitter against Paul. What do they decide to do? Well, they decide to go uh, without food or water, it tells us in Acts 23, until he's killed. This is not low-level bitterness. This is all out of salt. We must kill this man. Why? Because he's talking about the resurrection. He's talking about something that unsettles us. And so our chapter starts, and after five days, 
the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman. Do you remember Paul had to be removed under armed guard? He had to be taken away so that they couldn't kill him. And now we have him before the governor, before Felix. Now, who is Felix? Felix was a former slave, and he's given a new name. His new name is Felix, and it's actually happy, which is ironic because no one seems to be happy in this passage, apart from Paul in verse 10, whenever he responds cheerfully. But Felix, Felix had a bad reputation. He's a vicious man. He's, he's guilty of all kinds of cruelty. He goes on to assassinate the high priest. And his wife, well, if you think Felix is bad, his wife is even worse, Drusilla. She's actually somebody else's wife, but actually then Felix has taken her. And she's of the Herodian family. So her father murdered James. Her great-uncle murdered John the Baptist. And her great-grandfather murdered all the children in Bethlehem. This is a family with the pedigree of murder. It's a powerful couple, an evil couple. And if we were studying English language at, at this moment, or English literature, uh, the words prophetic fallacy would come in as the, the dark clouds roll in as we see Paul before Felix. We think, surely he can't get out of this. Jesus before the Roman judge, death. John the Baptist before the Roman judge, death. Paul before the Roman judge, what will happen? Well, we remember the words of chapter 23. You'll see it there, chapter 23 and verse 11. The Lord would stand with Paul, take courage. You must testify in Rome. And so we've got that in our memories thinking, well, surely this couldn't be the end, but it looks bad for him. And the charges are brought, three charges, that this legal representative on behalf of the Jews comes, this man, Tertullius, and he starts with his, uh, this little introduction in verse 2. It's, uh, it's probably part of the, the legal formalities of the day. As we would address a, a judge, we would say, Your Honor, well, so he comes here with this great uh, display of favoritism towards him. And then we'll see in verse 5 what happens, the first of three charges. This man, says Tertullius Paul, he's guilty of political insurrection. He's stirring up trouble. Look at verse 5. He stirs up riots amongst the Jews throughout the whole world. Not the actual whole world, but throughout the Roman world. He's a, he's a threat to the Pax Romana, which is the, the peace of Rome, something that they guarded. This man, this man will tear down your kingdom, says Tertullius. This peace that you have maintained, as he began in verse 2. He's disturbing the status quo, you see. He's unsettling people. And we want to get rid of him. Then the second charge comes again in verse 5. He's a sectarian religious leader. He, he, he leads this group, this little sect. He's, he's a sect of the Nazarenes. Now, within the, the Roman world, the Jewish religion was allowed. It wasn't the state religion, but it was permitted. But other, other religions were not permitted. And so what's he trying to do here? Tertullius is trying to label Paul as again as being dangerous. He's going to stir up strife. And then he comes in verse 6. If the first two have been more political, religious, then he, he finishes with really the last nail of the religious argument. In verse 6, this man desecrated the temple. Now, for the Romans, 
That didn't mean very much, but for the Jews to desecrate the temple was a punishment worthy or, or an offense worthy of death, and often the, the Romans would turn a blind eye to it, and they would let the Jews kill the person that would have done that. And then look at verse 9. The Jews joined in the charge. It's a little echo, isn't it, of, of what happened to Jesus before the Roman judge? Everybody joins in. They all join in, verse 9. And look at what they call him in verse 5. This man is a plague. In the ESV, it says a plague, or he's like a disease in other versions. He's troublesome in the NIV. But uh, this man's a nuisance. This gospel message that's unsettling us, we've got to get rid of it. We've got to end him. We've got to neutralize him. We've got to sanitize him. And so with a nod, look, verse 10 happens. The governor says, right, Paul, you give your response. Verse 11, really simply, he says, how could I have stirred up trouble? How could it have been me? I was only there 12 days. There's no Twitter. There's no WhatsApp. There's no Facebook. There's no Instagram. How would I have got around the whole city to stir up a riot? Verse 12, I had no disputes with anyone, nor was I stirring up a crowd. Verse 13, you've got absolutely no evidence for this. And really, we get to the heart of the matter. Verse 14, I worship the God of our fathers. What's he saying in that moment? He's trying to cut through the Jewish argument and say, listen, you've got to see what's happening here. I worship the God of our fathers, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses. I'm part of the true tradition. I'm trying to show the Jews here, Paul says, that I'm trying to show them what they're missing, that they're missing the Messiah, the one who has arrived. Paul's trying to identify himself with the true stream of the religious faith that is Christianity. And so in verse 15, you say that you follow God, but you don't. And then in verse 15, there will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. Now, that got him in massive trouble saying that in chapter 23. And here he's with Ananias, the, the high priest, who is a Sadducee, who doesn't believe in the resurrection, and he says it again. What do we see in this? Paul's not going to back down. He has the truth, and he's not going to sell it. He's not going to back down. He's not going to bend. Instead, he says, this resurrection, this is going to happen. That Jesus Christ died, and he rose again, and because he rose again, we too will rise. In verse 21, again, Paul takes us right to the very heart. He says, really, this is about one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. It's the heart of the gospel. The resurrection is the gospel. Without the resurrection, there is no good news. There is no hope. There's no meaning to life. There is no eternal life. Jesus, if the resurrection is not true, Jesus was only a man and therefore his body and remains are still in a tomb somewhere in Jerusalem. And actually what we've been doing for the past 2,000 years has been a massive waste of time. If the resurrection is not true, then we can all go home. But it is true. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 and 3. You see, he will not give up the message of the resurrection. 
1 Corinthians 15.3 For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ Jesus, for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, died. And then he, in verse 4, was buried, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with Scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve, and then to five hundred others. Then again in 1 Corinthians 15, he says in verse 14, and if Christ, and it will come up on the screen, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised in verse 17, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. See, this is what Calvin calls the most important article of our faith. The resurrection. And words from C.S. Lewis will come up for us here. He says this, Jesus has forced open a door that had been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. The resurrection changes everything. The resurrection is the truth. The resurrection is what changes people's lives. And so Paul, before this man, who with one word could sentence him to death, what does he not do? He does not back down in the resurrection. He has the truth, and he will sell it not. Jesus Christ is alive. This has several implications for us. If Jesus is alive, then our God lives. He's not made of wood or stone. If Jesus is alive, if you're a Christian here today, you will rise again too. And that what is perishable will put on the imperishable. And because Jesus is alive, it authenticates every word of Scripture. It is the heart of the gospel. It changes everything but does this unsettle? Of course it unsettles people. It seems to be just outside of their logical minds. And this morning, if you aren't a Christian and you're here, you're, you're, you're trying to fill in the dots, aren't you? Well, if, if the resurrection is true, then Jesus actually was the Son of God. And if He was the Son of God, He came here and He died for, for sin and for my sin, and therefore he will offer me forgiveness if I will ask him for it. And that means that I'll have to follow him. I'll have to live my life for him. And for some, that's too much. The truth stabs to the heart. The truth undresses people, as it were, and people hate it. The light floods in, and it unsettles. Well, then let's move on to our, our second scene. We can't spend any more time. We'll talk about the resurrection at Easter and the depth of it. But let's move on this morning. The gospel then, secondly, the gospel unsettles to begin with, and then it judges. The gospel judges, and this is verses 24 through 27. If, if it was the, that the gospel was in the dock, well, now we're in the dock before the gospel. And we know what this is like because uh, this scene starts out with, with Paul being the one who's accused. And perhaps you have uh, conversations like this at home. Someone has annoyed you, 
and you bring your list of complaints, maybe it's at the dinner table, or it's on the sofa after dinner, you think I'll get dinner out of the way and have a cup of tea, and then maybe the form will be a little bit better. And then you bring up all of the things over the past week or month that have been really annoying you. And you go through them one at a time, bang, bang, bang. You have done this, and you've done this, and you've done this. And by the end of it all, you're the one that's going out to the freezer, getting ice cream, saying, sorry, I'm really, I am apologizing lots here. Because, and you think to yourself, how did that, how did that happen? I, I came with a list of complaints to begin with. And actually, it ends up, I'm the one that's saying, sorry, I'm the one that's before the docker, before the judge. You know how those conversations go. I don't know. It seems to be a skill that some people have to be able to turn things around. And that's what happens here. You see, Felix is the judge, and actually the judge becomes the judged. What does Paul do? Paul brings him before the very judgment throne of God. And look at verse 24. And as he was saying these things in defense, Festus with a loud, Christ, loud voice cried, what? Paul, depart from me. After some days, Felix came with his wife, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about the faith. And what does Paul do? He speaks the gospel in verse 25. He reasons with him about righteousness and about self-control, about the coming judgment. He doesn't back down. He talks to him about his righteousness, which Felix, for Felix will be non-existent. He talks to him about self-control, which is a fruit of the Spirit, which will not be present in his life. And what is the response? Look at verse 25. The response, as, as the gospel is proclaimed, the response is, go away. Go away. Where the King James Version, the authorized version, has it, Felix trembled. Felix trembled and he answered, go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, season, I will call for thee. He trembled. The judge trembles. This hard man, this this wicked man, as he's brought before the, the truth of the gospel, he trembles in his, in his very shoes. And then what does he say? Get away from me. That's enough, verse 25. That's enough for now. I don't want to hear this any longer. I don't want to hear you, Paul, anymore. I don't want to hear what you have to say. You're unsettling me. You're, you're starting to let the light pour into my life, and it's judging me. It's revealing things in my life, and I don't like it. I wonder if you ever used those words. If you're not a Christian this morning, to a wife or to a husband, to a parent, to a child, that's enough. I don't want to hear any more about it. I had a friend whenever we were primary school he said he was going to become a Christian. He was delighted. I remember it. And he went home. And his parents said, I don't want to hear any more of that talk. Don't upset the status quo. Keep Jesus' at arm's length. Block out the sound of the gospel. Run from the Holy Spirit. Is that you today? 
Have you been doing it for years? What are you afraid of? We're not told what Felix is afraid of, why he will not come, why he will not repent, believe in the gospel, believe in Jesus Christ. For us, it may be because we're afraid of what our friends will say, afraid of what changes we'll have to bring into our lives. For some of us, it's actually a question about humility. We've maintained for 30 or 40 or 20 or 10 years that, that the gospel has no power, that Jesus actually isn't who he says he is. And to actually admit this would be to humble ourselves. Here's my question, my plead with you today. Would you stop running away? Would you stop pushing Jesus away? Instead of saying, that's enough, would you say, tell me more? Instead of running, would you come and sit at Jesus' feet? Look at verse 26. It says that that Felix sent for Paul often and the two conversed, but why? It's it's not because, at least in this passage, it seems to be that it's not because he was intrigued about the gospel, but actually, it's because he hopes for a bribe. He hopes that that Paul will give him some sort of money, that if he brings him, that'll give Paul this little bit of hope, and then Paul will crumble and say, here, I'll give you a few pounds if you let me off. Made me think about, why do people come to church? Why do they go and converse, as it were, with the Lord? Come for several reasons, don't, don't they? Makes us feel good. Makes us feel like we've got a good reputation. Makes us feel like we're doing God a good turn, that we're earning some credit with Him, and so He'll owe us one. Maybe it's because if you're a younger person, it's to keep your parents off your back. Maybe it's to keep our partners off our backs. Maybe it's to, to sort of have some imagination that that this will bring me gain, that'll do me good. Well, look at the tragedy of verse 27. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded. Two years goes by, and he fades into the background of history. He had all the opportunity in the world to repent, hadn't he? All the opportunity in the world to come to Jesus. Two years. And for some people, they've maybe sat under the sound of the gospel for 40 and 50 and 60 years. All the opportunities. But chapter 24 ends with a haunting silence. What do we expect? We expect it to read that Felix and his household were baptized. That's how the rest of things have been kind of running in Acts. And instead, nothing. Those words, that's enough you may leave as he trembled. And the irony is this, and with this we're almost done. The irony is that that Felix trembled and he banished the gospel. And the next time that Felix would tremble, he would stand before his God, our God. And he would tremble again, only this time he wouldn't be the one that would do the banishing. Who would banish him this time? The Lord would banish him. Those words in Scripture that we know, depart from me, for I did not know you. All of his excuses, oh, but Lord this, oh, but Lord that, Lord, I I didn't this and I didn't that, that's enough. Depart from me, 
That's enough. You must leave. And it's words that I hope that every soul present here today never, ever hears. And instead, we run to Jesus. Instead, I trust that every soul here today will hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. So what do we see in Acts 24? The gospel unsettles. We know this. We know it in people in our own lives. And the gospel judges. It brings light into us and it reveals us, reveals the darkest parts of our hearts. And here's the thing. We don't stand judge over the gospel. The gospel stands judge over us. Jesus stands judge over us. And so the conclusion for us this morning is simple. If you're a Christian, do not be ashamed of the resurrection. And think, where does the gospel unsettle me today as a Christian? And why is it unsettling me? What work is the Lord doing in my heart? What's he doing in my life? What parts of the gospel do I not like? Where is the gospel revealing sin in my life, unsettling me and and revealing things to me as a Christian? And if you're not a Christian today, this this is one of the the most haunting passages in Scripture. That's enough. Depart. If you're not a Christian, please don't harden your heart today. Jesus says in John 3 and 17, I've come not to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through me. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Come to the Lord today. Know Him and be saved by Him. The resurrection is really true and it changes everything. Let's pray.